It is a, uh, a curious introduction. Luke, the gospel writer, says Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves. The parable itself is uncomplicated. We're going to get to that in just a moment. But to me, it is curious that Luke, in introducing the parable, says Jesus directed it at some who trusted in themselves. What does this mean, to trust in one's self? It is Jesus' ingenious way of instructing us about the deepest truths of life that he so often teaches in the form of little stories. Though short and simple, there's nothing simplistic about the parables of Jesus. And we've heard a number of them uh, here in church over recent weeks. I wonder if our Lord's parables may be the most insightful commentaries on human nature that anyone has ever shared. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a tax collector. So immediately I need to say something. The more familiar we are with the parable, uh, the more it may be necessary to, to take off our figurative reading glasses and wipe the smudges off the lenses so we can see more clearly what the parable is actually about. I think that's true of this one, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So the arrogant Pharisee stands aloof from the other worshipers at the temple and looking around rather than actually praying to God, he mumbles to himself how glad he is not to be like the other riffraff there that he observes in worship. A humble tax collector, hated by other Jews as a Roman collaborator, he's also there. He stands off by himself, beating his breast, bewailing his sinfulness, praying for God's mercy. And so we are meant to compare the two, and we do that, and we say, I am with the tax collector. I like him. I dislike that smug Pharisee. He's the type that always gives religion a bad name. Now look, I'm no Mother Teresa, but I am not like that. And such a reading of the parable indicates that we are exactly like that. So here's the typical mainline sermon on this parable. Don't be an arrogant jerk. Be humble. Pride, bad. Humility, good. Come on, y'all. Jesus is not much interested in moralistic aphorisms that you can get from just about any other religion. I'm not minimizing the sin of pride that is on full display here in the Pharisee. Pride is, of all the sins, the most fundamental, the most insidious, the most complex, and the most subtle in the way that it works in us. What I am saying is that the text is less about our problem with pride than with Jesus' problem with our pride. That is to say, how Jesus deals with it. So the interpretive lens is offered up in that curious introduction. Jesus told a parable to some who trusted in themselves. Trusted in themselves. 
Trusted what? Trusted that they were righteous, we are told. In other words, Jesus is addressing that universal human tendency to trust or to believe that our righteousness is up to us. But what is righteousness? It's almost hard to think of a more central concept, a more important reality in the Bible than righteousness. From the earliest pages of the Bible, the central concern from that point all the way forward is about what needs to happen for the severed relationship between God and humanity, rendered asunder by Adam and Eve, as you remember, what has to happen for that relationship to be restored? The biblical concept of righteousness is about that relationship. To be righteous is to be in right relationship of acceptance and peace and fellowship with God that bleeds out into all other relationships leading to, again, acceptance, peace, and fellowship with others. So how does that happen? How do we get set to rights with God, with, with our neighbors, with our family, with our pasts, with ourselves, and all their broken and wayward thoughts and desires and wounds? Well, I think that there are two voices two different voices that speak to this question in a place like this. One voice is the following. Who are you kidding? I know and you know who you really are. And if others found out what is actually lurking beneath all the layers... They would be so disappointed in you. They would probably reject you. What are you even doing here? Christians are supposed to be good people. You're no good. This is the voice of the enemy. That is satanic. In the name of Jesus, tell him to be silenced in your life. But there is this other voice as well, and this is what that voice says. Hey, you're good. Really. Keep going. You're good. I mean, especially, look at Jim over there. No, man, you're good. You're good. You're good. You could be better. Could be better. I mean, there's John. There's Susan on the other side of the church. Look at them. I mean, look at, look at their jobs, their lifestyle, their house, their kids. They're better. You're good. You could be better. You might want to try harder. This, too, is the voice of the enemy working through cultural norms and expectations that cannot possibly ever deliver the abundant life that we yearn for, for which we were made. In the ancient Greco-Roman world of the New Testament, as well as in our own world right here, a righteous person is somebody who is admirable, respectable, honorable, a revered person in society, someone who, who does the right thing. And the Bible is not much interested in that kind of righteousness. The thing the Bible is almost solely interested in is the kind of righteousness that gets us back to being right with God 
which sets us right with life. And at the core of the biblical witness is this. We cannot do it. Those who trust in themselves for righteousness either succumb to the condemnation of the adversary's voice or succumb to the futility succumb to the futility of trying harder and harder and harder to get what we are looking for, but can never quite attain because it eludes us, always. And the core of the gospel message is this. God can do it. God wants to do it, and God has done it. That is to say, brought us into right relationship, the restoration of the abundant life, there for the taking otherwise totally lost if we trust in ourselves. So we have spent weeks now through the summer, well into the fall, reading through the pages of Luke's gospel on Sundays. I cannot help noticing that where we are in that gospel today, we are getting closer and closer and closer to the climax of the gospel, the crucifixion of Jesus in Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples continue on their way from Galilee toward the holy city in this gospel. They're not quite there yet, but they're not far off. And this parable told here in this place in the gospel is a foreshadowing. Because this is a parable that involves worship. It involves worship in the temple, the sacred structure where sacrifices of atonement involving the sprinkling of lamb's blood, occur day after day after day after day. It seems never enough. These ongoing liturgies that symbolically and religiously name the need that all people have for there to be some sacrifice that restores this relationship, restores us to the fullness of life that we can never get on our own. And the Pharisee, who among all people should know that, seems to have forgotten. I forget all the time how easy it is to succumb to the sideways glance, assuming the measure of life is weighed in comparison to how other people are doing around me. And my friends, I'm here to tell you again, there is such Freedom in being liberated from that way of gauging life. There will be always others around you that you can look down upon, and there will always be others around you that seem ahead of you. It was about 30 years ago exactly. 1989, I was just married, happily getting set on life, but very stressful in my work life and still dealing with a sense of call and some struggles there. And we were members at Grace and Holy Trinity Episcopal Church in downtown Richmond. And I'm sometimes reluctant to share mystical kinds of experiences. I mean, how many times have I taken Holy Communion? Thousands. But this is the one that is more memorable than any other. And it's a very simple thing. I came up, took communion, I went back to the pew with Susie Lee. We were kneeling on the kneeler, saying some prayers, and I got off the kneeler, sat back, and I looked up, and there was just a line of people coming down to receive. 
I'd seen that many times, and I don't know why on that particular Sunday it hit me. Young and old, rich and poor, it's a pretty diverse congregation. I'm sure Republicans and Democrats, every single one of us going forward, because we were all equally in need of the very one thing that none of us could get on our own, and I've never forgotten that. And I stand here on Sunday after Sunday, and I, and I invite you into that, because I remember. Thomas Merton, in his um, 20th century uh, well-known autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain, says it like this. There is a paradox that lies at the very heart of human existence. It is that man's nature by itself can do little or nothing to settle his most important problems. That is, that is so hard to trust. And the tax collector here, he is admired, not because he is humbled and therefore not prideful. He is admired. We're meant to, to relate to him because he is a figure who recognizes he has no power to trust in himself given who he really is. But he turns to God rather than turning away in despair or self-condemnation. That is the last thing God wants us to do. To measure life according to the standard of Jesus rather than the standard of the world. We are never more human than when we each make our humble way forward before God with nothing to offer except empty hands. God be merciful to me, a sinner. And God is. So it's here in this little story about the inability of anyone to get right with God on terms other than God's own gracious gift of Jesus that we are given the key to life itself.